My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Efree. Great to be with you today. Welcome to everyone watching online at CarneyEfree.com as well. I know that there are many that are choosing to stay home right now, and that's understandable as uh, lots of us have been exposed to lots of sickness over these past number of weeks, and um, we will maintain that online portal for people to stay connected to our church for the foreseeable future, as we know that's just necessary in these days. We wish it wasn't, but that's part of it. So we welcome all of those who are watching online at carneyefree.com as well. Hey, I want to just reiterate for a moment what Cody just said related to Compassion Sunday. If you're newer here to uh, Carney Efree, this is a partnership that we've had for about four or five years with um, Compassion International in Magange, Colombia. When we launched it four and a half years ago, 300 uh, families in our church chose to sponsor a child in Colombia. And it was just an amazing outpouring of love as we have this partnership in this little town, Magange, a little town of 100,000 people. And um, we are building that partnership over time. We've had a couple mission trips there that have kind of been interrupted these past years by COVID. Uh, we're still not allowed to go visit the church that we helped to build and we help plant, and it's not, it's not able to go visit that this summer because of their restrictions and COVID, well, which is big there as well. Um, but this is an ongoing partnership, which we're really, really thankful for. Uh, I was particularly grateful for this partnership uh, last week as I was thinking about it because just about five or six weeks ago, I got reconnected with the child that I had sponsored when she was growing up. And uh, my family sponsors a couple kids now, but earlier on in my Christian life, I got introduced to Compassion. I started sponsoring a five-year-old girl from Haiti named Erla and sponsored her through the end of her Compassion time at age 17. She graduated from the program. And just recently, she reached out to me on Facebook. Facebook is good for something. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> uh, she reached out to me about by Facebook, and I came to learn that she's now a mother of two wonderful kids, she's a loving wife, and she is a committed, God-fearing woman. And she reached out to me to say, Adrian, thank you so much for all those letters you wrote. Thank you so much for uh, being my sponsor all those years. Uh, thank you for helping lay a foundation that was so significant for me now as a follower of Christ. And what a delight now for me to be able to be back in touch with her. And so we've exchanged back and forth on a number of occasions. I just share that with everyone because the letters that you write to your sponsor kids, they matter. Uh, I sometimes forget to write letters to our sponsor kids, but they matter a great deal. It's a, it's a blessing to them when they receive those letters. I've been down there, and um, th they post their letters. Like they're so, it's a big, big deal. They're so grateful for their sponsors. If you'd like to sponsor someone today, we have 32 more kids available for sponsorship this morning. 10 were sponsored after the first service, and we have this great long-term partnership there, Magange. Encourage you to consider that. It's a great way that we are moving from Kearney to the world together as a church family. Let's pray, and we'll jump into this morning's message. Oh, Father, we thank you for every person here. We thank you for all those watching online at CarneyEfree.com. Thank you, Lord, for your love for our church family and for each and every person by name. You know us all. You see us all. With whatever we're feeling today, with whatever intense emotions we might be dealing with right now, you see us. And we're grateful for that. You see these children in Magange, and we're grateful for each and every one of them. 
and for the partnership we have there. Would you bless them? Would you protect them from COVID and from other illnesses? We pray for our church family who's not able to be here today because of COVID. Pray your healing on them and on others who have other illnesses as well. May your healing touch beyond them. Father, would you continue to grow us as a church family as we endeavor upon this sermon series, A Beautiful Mess. We ask, God, that you would give us a right and biblical view of the church, and you would form us by the power of your scriptures even today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Years ago, I had a conversation with a young man who consistently attended the church that I was serving at the time, and he informed me that he would no longer be attending the church because he was done with the institutional church. And I asked if I could follow up, if I could meet with him and understand a little bit more why. He shared with me a couple of the reasons, but really as we went back and forth in our conversation, it came down to this, a summary statement which he gave a good metaphor to explain. He said, the church, and I'll never forget, he said, the church is kind of like training wheels on a bicycle. You use it for a time as it helps you out, and then you take those training wheels off and you go off on your own. That was his view of the institutional church. I disagreed with him, and we went back and forth, but we weren't getting anywhere, and so we parted our separate ways and invited him to keep conversing with me if he wished. To his credit, he came up with a good word picture that stuck with me, that stuck in my mind for these past 10 or 12 years since he said that to me. But the word picture that he came up with was fundamentally flawed. The premise of the word picture is flawed for this reason. The idea that he had with respect to the church was, it is all for me. It was a consumeristic mindset that he had of the church. To the extent that it's able to help me, I'm okay with it. When I'm no longer getting what I want or I feel that I need from the church, I will shed it like training wheels. But you know, one of Jesus' most frequent lines was this, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Or related to that, one of his most frequent lines was, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Consumerism, anyone? You won't find it in Jesus. You will find no consumerism in the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus' message is the opposite of consumerism. Consumerism says, what can you do for me? How can I have it my way? If the church is not filling me up, inspiring me the way I want it, then I'm done with it. But Jesus' message was, what can you do for others? How can you commit to this and thereby bring benefit to others? Jesus invited us to commitment for at least a couple reasons. Commitment in the church is critical because we don't just come to church 
saying, what do I get from it? We come to church saying, how can I serve others? Like a key idea in Jesus' teaching as it relates to the church is, I'm here for you. And you're here for me. And you're here for each other. We commit to one another. We also commit because commitment fights against the natural bent of every human heart that says, I'm out for me, myself, and I. That's what's in each of us. Everyone on stage and everyone in this room, in one way or another, we have to fight against that. And so commitment, paradoxically, helps us because it chips away at our self-oriented bent and thereby leads to spiritual growth. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus said that he would build his church, that it would become this wonderful granite boulder, and even the gates of wickedness would not prevail against it. Jesus said he loves his church, he's going to build it, and nothing's going to prevail against it. You fast forward from the Gospels, then what you see is the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, all you have is the building of the embryonic church. The new church is starting, and they're trying to figure out, and they're having all different kinds of little house churches developing all over Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. They're building up the embryonic church, trying to figure it out. Then after the book of Acts, you have what are called epistles, and epistles are letters from apostles, like James and Peter and John and Paul, and they are writing to the church. They're writing letters to individual local churches, which then were to be spread out across the church in the Roman Empire and beyond until it even got to us here in central Nebraska. And then, that's the end of the Bible. Okay, is the church kind of a big deal to God? That is the New Testament. That thumbnail sketch, though, that I just gave you is the New Testament's view on the church. For Jesus and the New Testament writers, the church was actually a big deal. Now, last week, well, we noted that we're kind of in an anti-institutional age, but even so, we noted that in the midst of that, we are called out to reflect Jesus to the world. We're called out to proclaim Jesus to the world. We're called out of darkness and into light to be reflectors of the beauty of Christ to those who are around us. We are called out together. I recognize, though, that many people don't want anything to do with the institutional church, and this was true of the gentleman, though, that I just mentioned, but because they find the church to be legalistic. They've had some kind of experience with the church that it's been hyper-organized and so many rules, and they don't want to be in a place that is legalistic on secondary things, and guess what? I don't either. I have no interest in that. And today, as I'm going to be talking about commitment, that we commit together, what I'm not talking about is commitment to that kind of church. I don't want to commit to that kind of church either. What I am going to talk with you about is that we would commit to each other. We commit together. We commit to each other. We commit to the mission. We commit to worshiping God. We don't commit to a person on stage. We don't commit to an organizational structure. We don't commit to certain programs. We commit to each other. Turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2. 
If you have your Bibles, open them with me. If you have the YouVersion app or however else you get the scriptures, that's just fine. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one as a gift from us, you can go to the information table and pick one up there for free as our gift to you. But Philippians chapter 2 comes after First and Second Corinthians, then Galatians and Ephesians. You get over to Philippians. If you get to Colossians or Thessalonians, you've gone just a little bit too far. But the book of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul, and again, it's a letter to a church in a town called Philippi. Philippi is a town in ancient Macedonia or modern-day Greece, and this was a small church, maybe of 25 or 50 people, and they would gather together, and this was probably the Apostle Paul's favorite church. It was a church that he absolutely loved because they encouraged him, and he encouraged them in return, and they were really generous. Though they did not have a lot, they were not financially wealthy. Even so, they gave to Paul's missionary efforts and to other churches that were more impoverished than they were. Now, even so, the Apostle Paul has some instructions for the church in Philippi as they would grow themselves together as a church body. They were beautiful. They were messy at times. They were a wonderful church, but they were not perfect. Kind of like our church, a wonderful church, but not perfect. And in this passage, Paul is going to give them some instructions on how they would commit to each other and what it's based on, the gospel of Jesus. With that said, Philippians 2 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, think of others before yourselves. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you ought to look out for one another's interests as well. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but instead he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, being born as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What I want to suggest to you out of this passage is three commitments in our relationships with one another as we would choose community here in this place. Maybe you'll choose to enter into a life group next week on Life Group Sunday or even today. You can go out to the Better Together table or maybe you're in a life group and you say, these are the kind of commitments that I want to choose. Or maybe you have a handful of very close friends in this room. You say, these are the kind of commitments that I want to choose in the context of this fellowship. These are commitments to each other that would make the church different than any other institution on earth. If we followed these three commitments, I promise you, the church would be different than any other institution on earth. The first one goes like this. We commit to unity, not uniformity. 
We commit to unity, not uniformity. So once again, if you look at verses 1 and 2, please notice how often the Apostle Paul speaks of the oneness that the church would share with each other. Verses 1 and 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, I would underline these words in my Bible, united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit. What that means is, I see the Spirit of God in you, and you see the Spirit of God in me. We see the Spirit of God in each other, and so we have fellowship together as children of God in that reality, that the Spirit of God meets between me and you, and we say, oh, we're brothers and sisters together. We have a common sharing in the Spirit. So he says, if you have any of this, if any tenderness and compassion, then do this. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Do we get the message there? Like, do you notice the oneness that Paul pleads for in this passage? Please understand that Philippi was not a homogenous city. It was like Carney. A variety of different people fought from a variety of different backgrounds. It was probably much more diverse than Carney, in fact. You would have Greeks and you would have Jews that were together in worship in the Philippian church. They would have very different dietary restrictions. They came from very different backgrounds. There was a racial difference there. There was previous religious heritage differences there. Jews were considered second-class citizens in the Roman Empire, whereas Greeks, which would also be in Philippi, were considered first-class citizens in the Roman Empire. And then they come in the church, and they're equally citizens before Christ. Okay? There's this unity in the midst of diversity in the early church. They were a very heterogeneous, diverse group of people. They would have had different ideas related to politics, and some secondary theological issues, major differences related to diet, and yet the Apostle Paul says, be of one mind. Not the same, we're not gonna be the same. Thank you, God. Like, how boring would that be? We are not gonna be the same. I'm grateful for that. But we can still be unified amidst our differences as we unite related to the great commandment and the great commission, as we unite, standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us by his grace, as we unite on the truth that to remember we live in Christ, to live in Christ, to live as Christ, to die as gain, we unite over these things. And friends, what our culture needs most right now, what a divided culture like ours needs most right now is a united church. Amen. A divided culture is begging for a united church. So I pray that we would commit to unity, not uniformity. And second, I pray that we would commit, as it relates to that, to resolving conflict quickly rather than letting it fester. And we all got conflict. And it's painful when we have it. But we, as the body of Christ, can be different than the world around us because we choose to resolve it quickly rather than letting it fester. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul instructed his church in Philippi to do. If you turn over with me to chapter 4, he gives us an example. 
Again, this is a beloved church, a wonderful church, a very healthy church, but they still have conflict, just like we will. Chapter 4 says this, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, you are my joy and my crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What he's saying is, Eudea and Syntyche, you're both in the Lord. Like, I mean, Jesus has already purchased both of you by his blood. You both belong to the Father. Would you please agree together for goodness sake? I plead with Eudea and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, the church is his true companion, the whole church, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These ladies are missionaries, and yet they're fighting with each other. Help these women who contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, we don't know what exactly the conflict was that Eudea and Syntyche had with one another, but apparently it was big enough to make it in the Bible. It was big enough that now, all these years later, Billions upon billions of people have read about their conflict. I wonder if people get into heaven and they ask, Eudea and Syntyche, what was it exactly that you were arguing about? Like, is it still a big deal now? Hmm, anybody? Is it still a big deal now, Eudea and Syntyche? No, it's not, a still, it's not a big deal anymore. Okay, so Paul, what he does, Paul always takes the bold and courageous path he is a leader, though, that you can fall. He's one who always takes the bold and courageous path. And so he simply names what is going on in the church of, say, 25 to 50 people as they all know that there's this elephant in the room and Paul is willing to call it out. That They all know that Eudea and Syntyche have had this conflict with each other for some time. And so now Paul says, you all know what I know. Let's just put it on the table. Here is the elephant in the room. Eudea and Syntyche, go into a room together, close the door, and work it out. That's what he's saying. And if you need help, ask the church. Maybe Clement can help you, he's saying. Maybe someone else in the church can help you. But by all means, the church is a place for peacemaking, not just peacekeeping, peacemaking. Now, I, I can hear people saying, Adrian, that's way too hard. It's too hard to work it out. Oh, yeah, do you remember what Jesus talked about? Do you remember what Paul talked about as he's given the gospel of Christ back in chapter 2? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. How hard is it exactly? How hard? Do you remember Christ, what he's done? How hard? Okay, yeah, that was hard. That was hard. And yet he did it for this reason, to reconcile you to God the Father whom you were not reconciled to before you knew Christ. Do you understand? 
Therefore, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who would go that far in order to promote reconciliation. How far will you go? Will you humble yourself to promote reconciliation while with someone else in the body of Christ? So what he's saying to Eudea and Syntyche is, yeah, you're going to have to get in a room together, and you're each going to have to name what you have done wrong, and whoever is the courageous one goes first. Okay, whoever's the courageous one is the first one to look in the mirror and say, let me list the ways that I have failed in our relationship. I apologize to you. That's the, that's the courageous move. That, that's the Christian move to do that. Okay, and then the other person does the same thing. And then after naming it, they're able to forgive each other and probably, my guess is, Eudea and Syntyche did not become book club buddies. Like, they didn't all of a sudden become best friends, but they learned to forgive each other. They learned to forgive each other, and then they started to move on, and this is critical for the health of any church. I saw this beautifully a number of years ago. As an older man was giving me some instruction, he was, I think, uh, 77, 78 years old. His name was Walt Baker and just a beautiful man who I looked up to tremendously. And uh, Walt came up to me and he asked, uh, how's your marriage going, Adrian? And I'd been married for about two years then and I started to answer and started to stutter and he was like, cat got your tongue. You know, you're not saying much here, Adrian, you who talk a lot. And uh, I wasn't quite the expert in marriage back then, two years in as I am today. 17 years in. You can ask Susie. I'm totally an expert. No, there's no experts in marriage, right? There's no experts in marriage. But like when you're two years into a marriage and you are listening to a man who's 77 years old and he tells you, can I just share with you something that's made the difference for me and my wife across 50 years? Like you're all ears at that point, aren't you? You say, go ahead and drop the wisdom on me. He said, these are the two things that we committed to, Adrian, across our 50 years of marriage to, to this point. Dottie and I committed to these. Number one, we have resolved every conflict but before going to bed. And if for some reason we were not able to resolve the conflict, we would commit to resolving it again the next day. We dealt with it every night as much as we were able but before going to bed. And then number two, well, we committed to this. After resolving the, the conflict and after forgiving each other, we committed to never bringing it up again. I, I said, why is that, Walt? And he said, because love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13. And I've tried to hold on to those. I've failed at that. But I've tried to hold on to those two little bits of wisdom across our marriage. And I tell you what a difference it has made. This commitment to resolve conflict quickly rather than allowing it to fester is so important for all relationships, but especially amongst us in the body of Christ. You know, each of those passages though, that I'm referring to, those are wonderful for marriage. Like my wife and I, we use Philippians 2 on our wedding day. That was our key passage that the pastor preached upon as we joined together for the rest of our lives. Philippians 2. Other people have used 1 Corinthians 13. I've just referenced both of those. And they're wonderful for weddings, and they're wonderful for marriage, but you know what they're intended for first? They're intended for the church. They weren't first intended for weddings. They were not first intended for marriage. 
They're intended for local churches like ours, that we would practice these together, that we would agree the quicker we resolve those conflicts, the quicker those wounds will heal, the longer we allow them to fester, the more bitter they will become. Every year, all of our staff and our elder board and our finance team, other leaders in our church, we sign a commitment to biblical conflict resolution. We do this every year, both the staff and the spouses. And it's a number of different commitments that we make. On the back is our signatures and a number of different verses that back up how the Bible says well, we should handle conflict. There's lots of things that are gray in the Bible. There's lots of gray issues. But one of the things that's not gray in the Bible is how you handle conflict. It's black and white. And so, well, we agree together on these statements each and every year. I'll just read with you uh, little portions of these. One is to glorify God. We commit to glorifying God. Instead of focusing on our own desires or dwelling on what others may do, we will rejoice in the Lord and bring him praise by depending on his forgiveness in all things. Number two, we get the log out of our own eye first. Instead of blaming others for a conflict or resisting correction, we will trust in God's mercy and take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts. Ooh, anybody? Anybody here? Gently restore. So quiet in this room today. (laughs) Number three, gently restore. Instead of pretending that conflict doesn't exist or talking about others behind their backs, we will not gossip. We will overlook minor offenses, or we will talk personally and graciously with those whose offenses seem too serious to overlook, seeking to restore them rather than condemning them. Number four, go and be reconciled. Instead of accepting premature compromise or allowing relationships to wither, we will actively pursue genuine peace and reconciliation with one another. Do you think you have a healthy church? Can I tell you, part of the reason this healthy church is as healthy as it is, is because of that. Our leaders commit to that together every year. Telling you, friends, the commitment to own your own stuff and to resolve conflict quickly is a pillar of any healthy church. And it is a pillar of any healthy church. Christian. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that all the wrongs will be quickly forgotten. It doesn't mean that trust will be immediately restored. It may take months or even years at times to restore trust. But the commitment to resolve conflict is a building block of a healthy Christian life. All right, number three, we commit to sacrificial love for A few, not for all. This is not on your outline, but I encourage you to write it down. It's my mistake. It's not on your outline. Please write this down. This is the third commitment. We commit to sacrificial love for a few, not for all. Say, what does that mean exactly? Are you telling me, Adrian, I don't have to love everyone in this room? Jackpot! (laughs) Like, you might think that. No, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you you don't have to love everyone in this room. You do have to love everyone in this room, but you love sacrificially only a few. Like, I pray that we would be a church that when we come here on Sunday morning, we would look at everyone and give them a smile. That we would look people in the eye, and if anyone asks us to pray for them, we would drop everything to pray for that person in a moment. That we would literally care for every person in this room 
recognize every person in this room as made in the image of God and be willing to help them if we had an opportunity to do so. But at the same time as we recognize that desire to do for all, we also recognize that we each have limited resources, limited finances, limited energy, do we not? And so because we have limited resources, finances, and energy, we commit to sacrificial love for just a few. What I would encourage you to hold on to is we do for a few what we wish we could do for all. Each of us needs to commit to doing for a few other people what we wish we would be able to do for every single one of us in this room. And at least for me and what I would encourage in this church is that you would do that first and foremost for your family and then probably out of that, your life group. That you'd have a life group that you say, I am willing to sacrificially love these 10 people. If these people are hurting, I will do whatever I possibly can for these people. I will go above and beyond for them. That was kind of a natural within Paul's church in Philippi because, again, it was probably 25 to 50 people. So they all knew each other and they could easily sacrifice for each other and they oftentimes lived communally with each other back in those days. It's very different in a church of thousands, isn't it? Very, very different. We know that we cannot sacrificially love everyone. And yet, even so, to us, the Bible says... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Looking not to your own interests, but sacrificially looking to others' interests as well, your attitude is the same as that of Jesus Christ. And so how do we practice that? We practice that in the context of a life group community where we give of ourselves to a handful of others on a consistent basis, and we would be willing to sacrifice for them. Another way to put this is maybe asking the question, do you have a 2 a.m. friend? And are you a 2 a.m. friend? Do you have someone or a few people that you know could call you at 2 a.m., and if they were in a bind... They could call you and you would pray for them, you would care for them. Maybe you would get up out of bed and go serve them in that need. You would be there for them because you have this deep, sacrificial, loving community together. I have a handful of 2 a.m. friends, and a number, a number of them are in the life group that I attend. I don't lead that life group. It's the life group leaders who have cultivated an environment where that could happen because we get together and we pray for one another and we laugh together and we encourage each other and we listen to each other's burdens and we invest in each other such that over time these bonds have been created that if any of those guys called me at 2 a.m., I'd be there for them. And I know they'd be there for me. And we need this in the Christian life that we would each have a handful of those folks who would be there for us and we would beef up for them and collectively we would say we are willing to sacrifice for each other. You're going to have an opportunity today, next week, to, to sign up for, for a life group. I pray that if you do, don't yet have one, yeah, you would do so. And in the context of your life group, you would make these three commitments that, that I just articulated. Let me just wrap up here well, with this a uh, couple analogies for, for a life group. The life group is a hospital, and the life group is also a boot camp. Okay, it's a hospital, though, that we bear our burdens well with each other. Sometimes we're the patients, and sometimes, well, we're the doctors. We hear about someone else's anxiety, and we spend time listening to what they're dealing with, and we care for them right where they are. 
We hear that someone has a financial burden and we are willing to sacrifice for that financial burden. I was a part of Life Group a number of years ago and a couple was on the verge of being homeless. And the Life Group gathered resources together and collected like $10,000 and paid their mortgage for several months and a number of other bills as well. Sacrificial giving to protect a few others. Is the idea that we see in the New Testament for what the church is. It's a hospital for one another in our times of need. Hopefully it's also a boot camp that like men are training with men around men's issues and ladies are training with ladies around ladies' issues and collectively maybe you are debriefing a Sunday morning sermon. You say, how do we apply this in our neighborhood this week? How do we apply this in our family this week? How do we apply this in our workplace this week? Adrian was talking last week about loving our enemies. How do we do that? Like the Bible tells us to love our enemies. How do we, well maybe you practice that in life group. Not because they're your enemies, but like you actually could say in life group, what would it look like to love someone who has insulted you? What would you say? And you practice what you would say when you are insulted. That would be good Christian training in a boot camp called a life group without all the yelling, okay? This is good for us to think about life groups that way. Hospitals and boot camps where we're cared for and we're training for more and more of the spiritual life together. You know, that man that I mentioned at the very beginning of the message who basically said, I've shed the training wheels of the church. Again, the premise of his idea of the church was off. His idea was the church is all about me. It's all about me getting filled up. It's all about me getting inspired. And the moment I'm not being filled up by the church, then I'll just kind of shed it and I'll go find something else that works a little bit better for me. But what I would like to encourage you on as we wrap up, and if you don't remember anything else I say in this message, I hope you'll remember this. What I want to encourage you is to think of the church like this. Think of the church like that. Friends, we don't go to church saying, fill me up, fill me up. We go to church saying, who can we fill? Who can I help? Who can I pray for? Who can I bless? Who can I serve? Because in blessing and serving others, God changes us and he binds his beloved church together. I'm gonna invite the band up and uh, we're gonna pray and, uh, and wrap up though this morning. I wonder, well, would you stand with us right now? And as we stand together, I'd like to invite you to say that line together with me as we reinforce for ourselves what is a biblical view of church over and against our culture's consumeristic mentality. Would you please read this out loud with me? We don't go to church saying, fill me. We are the church that says, who can I fill? Oh, Father, we ask that you'd help us with that. I just admit to you that I need your help with that. I oftentimes will come to church on a Sunday morning and I think, I wonder if they'll sing the songs that I really like. I wonder if I'll be able to talk to the people that I really gel with. 
I wonder if someone will come pray for me. And sometimes I even confess to you, Father, that I'll go to another church and I'll think things like, I I really hope this is a, a great message that fills me up today. Hope the pastor gives a good one, though, this morning. And I confess to you, Father, that's the wrong mindset. That is the consumeristic nature of our culture getting into my soul. And what you intend is something different. That the way of the church would get into our souls and the way of the church would get out to the world. And the way of the church is this idea of commitment. That we are committed to each other. That we sacrificially love each other. That we're willing to resolve conflicts even though it's difficult. And that we seek unity with one another. And so, Father, I ask that you would help me each and every Sunday as I come to church and as I go to life group to ask, how can I bring blessing to others? How can I help fill others up? I want to commit to that more and more. And so I pray that for my friends in this room as well. Maybe they feel the same way. Father, to the extent that we have taken on the wrong idea of church, we are sorry. And we ask, God, that today and throughout this series, you would give us the right idea of church. And you would help us to commit to one another for your glory and for your renown. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen.